My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. I am Iron Man. Hello, hello, and welcome to the post-credit pod. Man, Eric, after several weeks of non-stop WandaVision coverage, we are now very quickly switching over to our next blockbuster Marvel series, The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, which shared its premiere, its pilot today. And Eric, it's just, it's just so funny that we had one week of downtime and now we're just back at it. You know what I mean? Well, I was going to say, like, I hate to be the one to complain about my fantastic job, which I love dearly, but I'd never want two projects this big to drop back to back ever again. Ever. It's <laughs> yeah, too plus- much discourse. It's too much memeing. It's too much watching. I can't take it. And if you if you guys have not checked it out yet, we had a special episode of the Snyder Cut uh, breakdown. So you guys got got to go check that out. It's been a lot of superheroes all week long. But now we're going to jump into the Falcon and Winter Soldier. But first, of course, all the trending big news. And then at the end, the reason why this episode is a couple of days late as opposed to normal is because we have a great interview with Bob Odenkirk, who you guys know from How I Met Your Mother, Better Call Saul, Breaking Bad. He now stars in Nobody, the new kind of John Wick adjacent action movie that's arriving this Friday. Kicks a lot of ass. I'm not going to lie. So really excited to talk with him. Oscar nominations came out. Eric, I got to give you credit, man. Daniel Kaluuya for uh, best supporting he really is the lock of the season right now yeah i knew it as soon as i saw it because all right this performance is the best of the year by a mile he was as met like you know those performances where you could just feel them being magnetic like it was the same thing with brad pitt last year every time he was on screen you were just like dude this is the most electric person i've ever (laughs) met in my entire life and that's very much the same here for different reasons but his performance is so captivating that Every time he's on screen, he sucks the life out of the entire film in a good way because it's now all on him. Daniel Kaluuya, man, Academy Award nomination in 2017 for Get Out. Now he's most likely 99.9% going to win this year. Still just I, 32. Yeah. Young man. I mean, you, you, I know you disagree, but I continue to say I would love Daniel Kaluuya as Bond. Do you have any big uh, takeaway thoughts? Uh, I mean, Netflix with 35 nominations, 36 if you count News of the World, which they distributed internationally. Once again, for every single awards body this year, they are leading all studios in nominations. Now they're probably not going to win Best Picture despite having two nominations, but man, they continue to to crush it on the terms that they want to crush it as. Yeah. Wow. So I got to give it up to them. Are you on the camp that uh, Nomadland's a lock? What's your feelings on that? Uh, I don't think necessarily No Man's Land's a lock. I think it's definitely the front runner. But, you know, uh, if I had a vote personally in no particular order, my top three would be No Land, Minari, and uh, Promising Young Woman in yeah, no particular I would, order. I certainly would not count out Minari. It feels like it's got, it's feel like, you know how in sports you want to get hot at the right time? <laughs> I think this movie is getting hot at the right time. It's definitely getting hot at the right time, but I, I think it's different than like a Parasite situation because you guys got to remember last year, Parasite debuted at Con, which is like May, won there, and then just kept dominating every film festival. Telluride, Venice, TIFF, you know? So it had, you know, eight months of just like, wow, this is something special where you're right, Minari's getting hot at the right time, but it's also a much more condensed timeline. There's not that groundswell of goodwill. Yeah. Uh, HBO working on three additional Game of Thrones spinoffs. In addition to the three they already have, these new ones are uh, one from Rome creator Bruno Heller. It's a series about Lord uh, Corliss Valerian, a.k.a. the Sea Snake. The character is also set to appear in the uh, prequel House of the Dragon, which is going to arrive in 2022. That's already been cast. They already have a guy playing that role. So it's unknown. That's the most cinematic universe, baby. It's but it's game. unknown. Is this uh, is this a spinoff for that specific actor? Is this a different time period for the same character? We don't know. Well, you don't th- See, I just assumed that they were going like Mando vibes. Whereas like they're going to have multiple things going on in orbit of each other. I don't doubt that, but it's it's curious that there are if they were already launching a spinoff for a show that hasn't even filmed yet, let alone aired yet. Right. right. You know, I just wonder if it's like if that character's dope, and then it's like, ah, oh, here's his younger years and the other show we're planning. Right, I wonder right. if it's something like that. Uh, we got a series about Warrior Queen Princess Nymeria. She's the one who basically, in other words, founded House Martell, who basically created the King of Dorne, uh, Kingdom of Dorne. The story is set roughly 1,000 years before the events of Game of Thrones, making it the oldest in the timeline 
of Game of Thrones shows. That'll be cool because Princess Nymeria is dope. Anyone who's a fan of the lore knows she's dope. And uh, Dorne is dope. As Redemption. Thrones, Thrones the, the Dorne storyline was one of the more underserved. So it, it would it's be awesome. nice to see them in all their full glory. Yeah, anyone who's, who's read the books knows how much potential Dorne has. So hopefully this lives up to it. Uh, and then the last of the new ones is a series set in King's Landing slum Flea Bottom, which is where like Gendry Baratheon's from, Davos Seaworth. <laughs> You know, it's, it's taking what place is this? In, like a workplace comedy. Like, what what is this one going to be? <laughs> that's what I'm so curious about. That's the one that had the least details from both Hollywood Reporter and Deadline. So I'm very curious what that even is. Like, is it like a street urchin Peaky Blinders? Is it? Yeah. I don't know. Blacksmith workplace comedy. I mean, I would be down for that. You know. Uh, then mm. the other ones that were already announced in Greenland, House of the Dragon. Tales of Duncan Egg, which are a series of novellas from George R. R. Martin that are great. That's They're turning into a TV show. And then an animated adult series for HBO Max that also doesn't have any specific details about it. So, you know, Warner Media going full franchise with its biggest IP in addition to yeah, DC yeah. and Harry Potter. Uh, One Night in Miami star Kingsley Benadire has been cast as the villain in Secret Invasion. He's a good actor. He's on the come up. I like him. I liked him in, in the two or three things that I've seen him in. Yeah, I don't think I've seen him in anything yet, but Cool. Nope. Uh, Nickelodeon is planning multiple Avatar series and films, including the one they already announced, which will be a theatrical film uh, set to debut at some point in the near-ish future. So pump for that. I love Avatar. Uh, Matthew McConaughey to star in an adaptation of John Grisham courtroom drama, A Time for Mercy at HBO. This will be him reprising his star-making turn in A Time to Kill from the 90s. Oh, I didn't know that. That's what? pretty cool, right? Oh. It's full circle. Time is a flat circle. All right, this there you go. I start oh, drinking okay. oh, that makes it interesting. Oh, wow. Right? Oh, now I've got to check that out. I've never seen You've never that. seen Time to Kill? No. Oh, my God, dude. That's, that's a great courtroom drama from the 90s. That was his oh, launching shit. pad. No kidding. Where he plays okay. a great lawyer. Yeah, and now, okay. now he's coming full circle, man. Uh, AMC Theater says 98% of their locations will be opened by today, which is great news for the box office. It's great news for the, the rebound of theatrical cinema. Great news for Black Widow and the like. So, fuck yeah. Yep. And fuck you, coronavirus. As if we haven't said it <laughs> yeah. enough already. In there. Seriously, join us. Hashtag fuck you, coronavirus. Get at us, at PostCredPod. <laughs> a uh, a follow-up to Justified is in the works with our PostCredPod bro crush, Timothy Oliphant, reportedly in talks to return. Uh, I'm not going to lie. Never actually seen Justified. Me either. I, and that's one I've tried a few times as well, but have yet to really get stuck into. We, buy, we both might have to do one and then do a special pod on it. Um, Benedict Cumberbatch will start in War Magician from Jurassic World director Colin Trevorrow. I uh, saw the, the synopsis for this. He basically uses illusions to fight Nazis, which... It's not a true story. I know, but oh, it also true. sounds so so right up the alley for the guy who made the Book of Henry. Which, uh, yeah, I mean, it's so funny. That, like, the way that you talk about this film, it's like, it sounds like it's the worst movie of all time. Yeah, yeah it does. It sounds terrible. I, I would have rather Benedict gone and done um, my boy uh, Thrawn, but he said he doesn't want to do that. And uh, yeah. Natasha Leone will star in Poker Face, a new mystery series written and directed by Ryan Johnson. I mean, great pairing of talent right there, but if we needed any other further evidence that his Star Wars trilogy is just never happening, Here's yet another yeah. project he's adding. Uh, he himself is the one who said it's still happening. So do with that what you will. I like doing the quick hitter news, Eric, because it's just kind of us running through all the cool entertainment stories. And this is the type of thing that gets me excited as a writer. And it's pretty cool because you and I actually entered into this really cool new contest about entertainment writing, film and television, where we can actually win a ton of money. Good, dude. Honestly, because with the NCAA tournament starting, I'm going to need some bread and I'm going to need it fast because my gambling L's are going to stack up quickly. But what's great about this contest is that it's easier than gambling because it is creative writing, which means we control it. And that's actually sort of how I became a writer to begin with, since I always preferred back at school writing a paper to taking a test because I always felt like the answers were right there in front of me. I agree completely. And this contest is exactly that. We basically get to write an if this, then that movie or TV recommendation. So, for example, Eric, if you love the Snyder Cut of Justice League, why don't you go watch Man of Steel? If you love The Sopranos, then go watch Yellowstone. Like right now, I'm writing if you love Lost, then watch Dark. And honestly, I think I can win this whole thing. 
And that's not only, Eric, because I'm a better writer than you. It's also because I am clearly a much better gambler than you. Dude, if I win first place, not only will I wipe out my debts for the month, I will wipe out my gambling debts of my lifetime. First place is $10,000, Brandon, $10,000. That's seven stimmies. Second place is $2,500 and third place is $1,000. Not only that, but if you're trying to break into the entertainment writing space, this is an awesome way to do it because you get published on an established site. But not only that, you're not being told what to write. You get to write about what you love. And that's when you put out the best work. There's literally no downside. All you have to do is head over to vocal.media and click on the challenges option at the top, then select the if this, then that challenge. Now you're going to need a premium membership to enter the contest. But with the code postcred50, that's postcred50, you get 50% off your first month of Vocal Plus membership. So it only costs $4.99, which is nothing. It's a drop in the bucket for a $10,000 grand prize. Contest closes on March 30th. So make sure to get yourself all signed up and entered before then. And don't take if you like Batman, then watch more Batman, because that's my idea. All right, now back to Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Again, just like uh, WandaVision, this is going to be a weekly release. Would you have preferred to binge this, Eric? Well, let me ask you this, Brandon, because I've been hearing a lot of discourse this week about the length of one cut, comma, Snyder. And <laughs> Which, again, go check all... out our podcast on it. Please, because I was up until an ungodly time trying to cut that podcast. Mm -hmm. Much appreciated, um, partner. That's right, I was drinking. Um, <laughs> what was I going to say? All right, so... Tell me this, if this was all put out at once, you're telling me that everybody wouldn't watch it all at once? No, of course they would. So if you're willing to do that, then I don't really understand the complaints about Snyder Cut being too long. So I just wanted to throw that out there. Now, given that this is not the sort of cerebral mystery box show that WandaVision was, I'm not sure the discourse around it is going to be as intensive. So that definitely changes the conversation of how it's meant to be consumed. If it's just sort of a big budget popcorn blowout fast moving, I could gladly wait each week. The WandaVision draw of wanting it right away is because you wanted the answers. I need to know what's happening. That doesn't really seem to be the case here. So with that said, I'm totally fine with the six week arc. Yeah, I would much rather a weekly show for kind of this communal event that is a Marvel show, a Star Wars show, a Game of Thrones, like we talked about at the top. I, I prefer that. It's more fun. I like chewing into each episode. I like writing reviews and writing think pieces and speculation. And then, hey, next week, let's see if we're right, even if it's not a mystery-laden series like a WandaVision. So I agree completely, man. That said, I still got theories and thoughts. So yeah, of course. All right, <laughs> let's go into our beat-by-beat -beat recap talk about the ins and outs, and then uh, we'll close out this episode with our awards and categories, whatnot. All right, so after half of all life returned from the blip, five years after they disappeared, Sam Wilson slash Falcon, he's working with the U.S. Air Force to track a plane hijacked by George Batroc, which is played by George St. Pierre, the famed UFC fighter, who I love because I'm a big MMA fan, and he's working with members of the terrorist group LAF. Now, the opening basically 15 minutes of the Falcon and Winter Soldier pilot is basically a stunning aerial action sequence that immediately puts every last dollar of the pilot's immense budget on screen. In very cool fashion, Wilson defeats the terrorist. He recovers a hostage from the plane with support from Air Force member Joaquin Torres. And frankly, it's just a badass opener. What did you think, Eric? So I've spent the whole week talking about reverence, reverence, reverence. And we actually get that here with both Falcon and Red Wing. Falcon's action is as slick and direct and purposeful as it's ever been. Like you finally feel like he's a superhero and not just a man in a suit who was just like right place, right time, you know, like he just happened to be jogging that one day. <laughs> now you really, now you really understand like, oh, this guy is nice with it. Like this is a superhero right here. And the use of Red Wing is like a tangible sidekick. Like you get it. He's not being used as a gag. One of my least favorite MCU lines of all time is in Civil War during that opening, what was it? In like Lagos yeah. scene where Falcon is there and Red Wing helps out and he's like, he's cute, right? Go ahead, pet him. That to me is just one of the most atrocious lines in the history of the MCU. So 
for them to like what it's just so funny because like i have no strong feelings either way about that line like of all the things to pick on you're like hey this this one throwaway joke at the beginning of a movie. Uh-huh. It's like a, just a random hill to die on. <laughs> I don't think I have to die on this hill. Who's going to tell me I'm wrong? It's so fucking like... I don't think it's that egregious, nor do I think it's like that funny. It's just, it's neutral to me. What human would say that about a robot in the heat of battle? I get One that's that. flirting with Scarlett Johansson. That, that's the type of human. You call that flirting? That's what, he, that's what he's doing. That's what Falcon's uh, attempting to do. Is that the vibe that you picked up that he was flirting? I mean, there's a, there was an article that came out this week. I can't remember what outlet, but Anthony Mackie was repeatedly pitching a Sam Wilson, Natasha romance repeatedly for years. <laughs> like this, this man knew what he was doing. Dude. That's like, I think I wrote it up last week or no, I don't know if I was telling you or telling my roommate, like, I got to get through this and not crack up. Ben Affleck handpicked Emily Ratajkowski to be his like uh, student girlfriend in Gone Girl. Did he really? <laughs> yeah, that's, handpicked that's... her. He was like Fincher. I've got her. I found a girl. So that is understandable. My... Yeah. So my man knew exactly what he was doing there. That is so funny. I can't believe I've never heard that. I've got to write about that. Point being is that I hate that fucking line. And ever since then, and just sort of the general way that they've used both Falcon and. And Red Wing, it's like a sideshow. But for the first time here, I'm like, oh, this is a devastating duo here. Like, if they ran into you, they would fuck your shit up real easy. So, yeah, um, well said. Go ahead. And then and just in terms of, like, actual technical stuff, I love the camera work in general and specifically the contrast of Sam's red suit against the blue sky and the clay tones of Earth. I thought that just looked like a painting. I mean, really beautiful. And also just the fluidity of his movement and his flying was very clean. And I also love the sort of GoPro-esque yes. close-up shots. That, Those sort I of mean- fifth-eye lenses, yeah. It was just a really impressive action sequence, like all things considered, you know, and and for anyone who thought WandaVision was too opaque or obtuse, especially in that deep commitment early to the sitcom bit, you know, this is a clear statement from the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. We starting off with a bang, you know, I, I loved WandaVision's opening, but this is clearly the other side of the positive spectrum, which I really liked. And I just think in general, even even outside during the quieter moments of the opening before the action really gets going. It really gives you a sense that both Sam and Bucky are men out of time. You know, Bucky's obviously been frozen for the majority of the last 90 years on and off, you know, and Sam has just returned from five years of oblivion thanks to the snap. So both men in their own unique ways are struggling to get their feet under them. And I think this is a great start to carving out individual arcs with very specific well-earned ways. And, you know, look at, look at what Sam does. He returns to the only thing, he really knows, which is being a hero, seeing the action, being boots on the ground. Obviously, though, it's wings in the air, more more act. Just on uh, a few details about that first part, um, we don't know what LAF stands for, and there's no, and there doesn't appear to be a comic book basis for them. I do have a guess, though. A couple guesses. Hit me. LAF, right? So my guess is either League or Legion blank freedom because obviously i it seems like they're going to build up the laf and the with the flag smashers or whatever the fuck they're called yeah i think my guess is laughing at fools because that's what we'd be doing <laughs> on post cred pod baby and then and then one more thing that i want to p- point out that i thought was preposterous george st pierre's character has literally fought in captain america hand to hand yet he simply could not believe it when his pilot said that there's a man on the roof. Yeah, I mean, open your mind, dude. Dude, what do you, do you, yo, you have fought a man who was born in 1920 hand to hand and he kicked your ass. Do you not like remember that? Like, also, you know, for all we know, he just returned from the snap too. Like, and if he didn't, he was aware of the snap. Like, crazy stuff is going on. Yeah, to you, are, your mind. You, are, you are a fucking <laughs> bad guy doing bad guy shit. You should be operating under the assumption (laughs) that there is a man on your roof. (laughs) But I really like that the MCU basically continues to explore the repercussions of the snap on multiple levels beyond just like heroes were there. Now they're not, now they're back. And I think this this episode, as we'll continue to get into, really addresses that in an interesting uh, way. So uh, after this whole thing, as we saw at the end of Endgame, Wilson was given, Sam Wilson was given the mantle of Captain America by Steve Rogers. But here he is very much struggling with the idea and instead 
decides to give the Captain America shield to the U.S. government so it can be displayed in a museum with Rogers' shoot, uh, suit. A member of the DOD even has the gall to tell him he made the right choice because he's struggling. He thinks it still belongs to someone else. He doesn't see himself as that hero to unite people. And our boy Don Cheadle, a.k.a. Rhodey, who we exclusively reported, will be in Falcon and the Winter Soldier on our podcast. Go check that episode out. He shows up right here in the pilot. And he gives him this nice pep talk. He reminds him that right now the world is broken and everyone is just looking for someone to fix it. And I really like this exchange because you can tell throughout the whole first part of the episode that the weight of legacy and future expectations is weighing heavily on Sam's good-natured soul. You know, he still doesn't believe he can fill the shoes of Steve Rogers in much the same way that we soon soon learn that Bucky doesn't feel as if he's capable of having a normal life. So they're both kind of centered around a similar emotional obstacle internally and externally, which again gets built out throughout the rest of this episode. And I think it does a good job of giving them different stories, but maybe a, a similar emotional center that we can both get around and wrap our heads around. We're on the same page here. The, the notes that I have for this, and I was going to say this for a bit, but Sam's ghost and Bucky's ghost are both from their past, right? But they're not the same. Sam is grappling with the weight of expectation of what came before and therefore who he should become, whereas Bucky is struggling with who he was, yeah. period, the end. So while they're both looking backwards, it's not for the same reasons. And they both on their journeys will meet in the middle as someone becomes who they were and someone who regains who they once were, you know? Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know if I said that correctly, but you know what, guys? It's Friday afternoon. The listeners will be forgiving. I really like the, um, the scene where Sam goes back to Louisiana. Uh, and I love the idea of like his uncles reveling in the time that they get to spend busting their superhero nephew's balls. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, we're just like, oh, he's here. Let's just dunk on him real quick. Like, business as usual. Oh, Sam's here. Like, he's not Falcon to them, you know? And I think that that's really sort of hammered home here. Yeah, it carves out a real person underneath the wings, which is important. But, so then, forget. but then the converse of that is, you know, and I think they do great family work here. And as you said, carving out the real man beneath the wings. But they sort of fall back into what I think is a cliche a trope of like the financials of a superhero, which is sort of like a paradoxical hits bomb theory. Like you think it's profound because you're like, oh, how does a superhero pay the bills? But it's not really profound because everybody already thinks about this. Like everybody wants to know that. I disagree so, though. I think sure you're that... taking a real world perspective with something that's, that's well, important. I, say, and... so I think the idea is, I think the idea is shallow. I do. But for as shallow as the idea is, I think that they handled it the best that they could via the bank teller solely seeing Sam as an object or somebody he saw on a poster and not as a person and being giddy and ready and willing to whip out his phone to take a selfie that he could send to his friends, that he could post online, but not willing to look past Falcon and talk to Sam and help Sam's family. So while, while he was tangibly strong, it's contextual idea for me is sort of well-worn. Like we get it. These guys have bills too. We'll, we'll get to that in a second. Cause it's, it's a little bit later in the episode, but I'll, I'll say why, why I do think it's nuanced at that, that point and why it actually tackles new ground for, for Marvel. But we will get to that. Um, we switched to Bucky Barnes. He's attending government mandated therapy as part of his pardon. And he's discussing his attempts to make amends for his time as a brainwashed assassin, the winter soldier. Uh, he's suffering from PTSD nightmares from all the horrible things he did in his past. And at the same time, as we learn in his discussion with his therapist, he doesn't believe he's deserving of a second chance and is also unsure of how to even approach his newfound freedom. Uh, through this this episode, we see that he has kind of an, an older gentleman friend named Yuri, who he has sushi with and kind of hangs out with. And over the course of the episode, we learn that Yuri lost his son overseas some time ago. And in a very emotional flashback that does a great job of using action to extend the themes and messages of the episode, we learned that it was actually Winter Soldier who killed his son all that time ago. So I think it's really interesting because, again, it's very important that the action sequences are more personal and that they're tied to what our heroes are going through. It isn't just CGI punch-em-ups punch for the sake of action. It's more methodically 
character specific. And I think they do that here. You know, Sam's aerial assault is damn impressive, but it's also him working through his feelings of loss and disorientation after Steve, after coming back from five years of non-existence. You know, Bucky's flashbacks, very hardcore, but it's also the center of his regret and his self-retribution. So the action flows from the characters in both of these action set pieces, which I think is impressive and, and is more mature than just a like, oh, we got to have a first act fight and then a third act fight. And then on page three, someone's got to blow up. So I, I appreciated that. Mal Malcolm Spellman, the showrunner, doing a good job. Yeah, I mean, if you think about the scope, uh, not the scope. Yeah, sure. The scope of the MCU heroes and who they have to choose from. Bucky's remorse may be the most rich thematic ground that there is to play on. Like, you know, nobody's going to confuse Marvel for being a think piece and overwhelming you with emotional depth, but outside of WandaVision. But here, you know, as you just said, that emotion is what is anchoring what is going to ultimately turn out to be a big budget blowout buddy cop comedy. But because they're laying the groundwork of how to properly register the action you're seeing and how that relates to the character's growth is... All right, then Torres, who was helping out Sam before and also had the hilarious conspiracy theory that Steve has disappeared to a secret moon base, which I just love. Uh, he's investigating another a terrorist group, the Flag Smashers, which I'm sorry, terrible name. Really love the episode, but terrible name. Uh, who believe life was better during the blip. They're trying to unify people under like one thinking, you know, uh, philosophy. They don't want borders in, in the world anymore. So Torres keeps Wilson informed about what he finds. Meanwhile, Sam wants to help his sister, Sarah, with the family business, which we were just discussing. They are unable to get a bank loan. He then learns that the government has named a new Captain America, John Walker. So what I wanted to come back to, you, come back to this with uh, in response to what you were saying before is, and I wrote this in my review for Observer, I think the Falcon and Winter Soldier breaks relatively new ground with Marvel with its approach to race. You know, I think in this scene where he's angling for a bank loan, he is treated more like a superstar athlete who exists as a product for the masses and less as an individual with his own agency, with his own needs, with, with a life that needs to be taken care of outside of these cataclysmic events. Um, you know, the bank employee, like you said, only sees what Falcon represents to him and not the real person underneath. And he also largely ignores Sam's sister, even though she's an equal part of this meeting because he's so kind of caught up in his own yearning for this celebrity uh, proximity infatuation. And I think this idea also of, of, of race and the voids being filled extends to the void left by Captain America's disappearance and whom the government chooses to fill and not fill that role moving forward. They clearly fucked over Sam. They had him donate the shield just so they could give it to John Walker. And so all told, the messaging is, is painfully clear. And I think it's very representative of how we commodify black celebrities for our own use and then cast them aside at our own convenience. And I really, really responded to that because I think it's genuinely the most nuanced part of the whole episode and, and the biggest message of the whole episode. Oh, see, I didn't pick up on that. The choice to donate the shield was not his. I think, you know, he it was his, but he agreed to it. I mean, the DOD guy at the beginning is like, you made the right choice as if they've had conversations about it. Okay. Okay. And then they take the shield away from it. So I think the bank loan scene and the fact that the government is doing that, they're tied into the same way. You are only as good to us as when, you know, it's convenient for us. And the second we find something better or something different or something that suits more our needs, whether it be some, some, something as small as a guy saying, I want my selfie and I don't care about your business loan, or the government saying, you're not our idea of the next Captain America. I think they're related. And it is a very interesting commentary on race in modern American society. Yeah, it's funny, right? Like this was everyone thought or, and we'll still end up being right. But once again, everybody is expecting, you know, WandaVision. Everyone expected it to be this multiversal blowout and it wound up being a love story. This, yeah. everyone is expecting this big budget action, shoot em up, buddy cop comedy. But really what we're getting is two men's journey to redemption and self-acceptance yeah. so like so once again marvel is and i brought this up a few weeks ago 
because they're and scraping is the wrong word because that implies filth but because they're scraping the bottom of their roster and they're now focusing on the less godly like characters the characters that we're getting stories about now are more nuanced people you yeah. know for example one of the pilot's best moments and this is marvel at their quiet best is when bucky is out to lunch with that old man and like despite how frequently they use it like i still enjoy that like old man stuck in a young body gag like the idea <laughs> of him, like being blown away by Tinder and stuff and the visual, like the actual visual of like this young man, his best friend being an old man, like that stuff still works for me. And the humor of that lunch is, is grown out of the pathos of the character. And then therefore the emotion of the character. Yes, we're all laughing. Oh, he's an old man. He doesn't get (laughs) Tinder. But at the same time, that is the very thing that is making him feel out of time and out of place. So I think it, I am most looking forward to I think more so the action of the show is the development not only of these two characters but them doing so side by side yeah and Um, a quick two things sorry keep going no go ahead go ahead just a a quick two things that you just remind me of it's like one throughout the their entire MCU existence and this is like no disrespect but they've always been less interesting to me because their arcs are defined by its impact on Steve and vice versa now without Steve holy shit in one episode they've really really established like no they have their own internal and external obstacles that feed back into their past and will define their future and i find that very interesting and number two exactly what you just said and what we said at the top about both of them being out of time i read this amazing twitter thread this week about a prisoner who uh, a lawyer who, who whose client got out of jail after 30 years and as part of you know just the, the natural reintegration of society and all the forms you have to fill out everyone was like oh we'll email it to you oh like we'll hop on zoom with the judge and like all this technical jargon, he's like, he was embarrassed to admit he had no idea what they were talking about. And so this lawyer, for the first time in, in, in her kind of career, realized, holy shit, we're trying to reintegrate them into a world that is completely alien to them. And I have to sit down and actually teach him just to click record, just to open the right icon. And so imagine that extrapolated to the nth degree, and then you have Bucky and uh, Steve to a, uh, a different extent when he was around. So that entire whiplash, that disorientation is fascinating to me. And I think you're absolutely right to say they're still wringing good content out of it. Now, less on the thematics and, and more on the fun part, the theories. When um, Torres goes to investigate the flag smashers, do you notice on the iPad or his cell phone in the top left corner, there's a hand Yeah. imprint? Given the way that this series seems set to bring us to Madripoor, do we think that we're getting the hand here? And that this is one of the projects that this is going to tie into is Shang-Chi. That's a great point. And I got to be honest, you couldn't get more literal of a tease than a hand. And I didn't even remotely think of that until you just said it. That's a brilliant really? point. Yeah. And it's you couldn't get more obvious. Yeah, but, that, they've done this, but, but they've done this shit before, right? We've seen it with Mandarin. We've seen it with Pietro. Sort of when, when they wave it in your face like that is when you should be the most right. cautious. But because I have the context of they are going to be visiting a Far East Shanghai-esque city at some point, that is what made me think, oh, that hand there may be the hand that I think it is. And given this week... They had teased that this is going to tie into at least three MCU projects, which to me sounds ridiculous. Now, I think one of those is going to be Secret Invasion because they're just going to be throwing skulls and everything. Now. <laughs> You're going to be getting scrolls left, right and center. One of them, I think, could be Shang-Chi because of what I just said. To that point, Joanna Robinson, just one of the best in the game. I love her. If you're not reading her, everyone needs to be reading her at Vanity Fair. Um, She pointed out on Twitter either today or yesterday that she had heard Torres was only added in October and that a lot of this in pandemic was overhauled, not because of quality issues. They just thought of different directions to take it in. So if they were still tweaking as recently as a couple months ago, like literally anything is possible. That's interesting. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did not know that. Cause he's, cause he just strikes me as that, oh, friendly sidekick that's either A, going to die tragically or B, turn bad. 
Yeah, well, so, and he does get his fucking ass kicked. So it, who runs up to the like a terrorist bad guy who's he's like, hey, I don't know what my jurisdiction is. I'm like, dude, you gotta you gotta be a man of action right there. I'm yeah, not saying yeah, shoot yeah. him, but like do something besides being like, yeah. I'm the guy you need to beat up. But yeah, I mean, overall, I thought it was solid all the way through. Um, it's clearly not intent as in, despite how we think it's gonna have more depth than people thought it would. It's clearly not intent on pushing boundaries the way that WandaVision was. And because of that fact- I mean, I think WandaVision's pushing boundaries form and function. I think if they continue to, to look at race and, and a famous black man's role in a modern America, I think that's a little bit boundary pushing. True, but do you think that that will bear itself out? I, I think it still might with the with the Falcon mantle, uh, with the Captain American mantle and John Walker and Falcon on these like, kind of opposite ends. Do you think going to be expressed explicitly and not just inferred? I don't know, but I also think still infer, you know, Black Panther is an Afrofuturism story, but it, it doesn't have much to do. Uh, it has a little bit to do, but not much to do with America. And, and so I think kind of positioning it more as a domestic story, given all the, the racial tension in the country forever, and especially over the last year, would be really, really interesting and compelling. Yeah. And then I'm, I, I said this sort of, I'm just looking forward to, they do a great job of setting up the very different, just general emotional vibes of these two sam is a very personable happy go lucky center of the room life i mean he's been texting bucky and bucky's not answering yeah yeah yeah. bucky like can't even can't even speak to people he can't even look finish a date so yeah so they're doing a great job of just setting up how these two are going to drive each other absolutely nuts i'm looking forward to that i hope they link up first thing next week because, uh, you know, while this week was good, I'm here for the two of them. That is very clearly going to be the show's most enjoyable dynamic. And I am ready for them to dive in as soon as possible. If I had to guess, they won't be separate for too long. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. All right, let's go into our awards and categories. The Infinity Gauntlet Award for the real MVP. Fine. I'll do it myself. I'm going to give it to showrunner Malcolm Spellman, who I think transforms two supporting characters I've just never much cared about for the reasons I've mentioned. And like I said, whose arcs have always been defined by Steve Rogers. And he just transforms them in in one episode into into characters with backstories and, and mental headspaces and defined obstacles as rich and compelling as any, you know, Iron Man or Captain America. So I, I was really much enjoyed this pilot's character texture, the way it set up the overall crux of the season and the through lines that will carry over for each of them in future episodes. So Malcolm Spellman, my man, that was awesome. As I said to you before, I'm going to have to do these off the cuff because I didn't really have time to prepare for them. So I'm going to go with the stunt coordinators who finally figured out how to make Falcon look legitimately threatening and cool. Uh, awesome. And then I'm just going to touch on ha- like what we just talked about, the foundations that they're putting in place for what could be, it's not yet, it's Schrodinger's plot line, what could be, as you pointed out, a very rich thematic racial ground for them to explore. All right, the Thor The Dark World Award for the worst performance. They didn't have come so far, Asgardian. Death would have come to you soon enough. Not by your hand. I'm going with the Department of Defense. Now, Eric, quickly, let's just count how many instances in the MCU where the government has either not trusted its heroes or in some way, shape, or form betrayed them or not let them finish their job. And just from a quick count, and I definitely could be missing some, I got Incredible Hulk, Thor. Captain America, The Avengers, Iron Man 3, The Winter Soldier, Civil War, Black Panther, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Captain Marvel, and WandaVision. It never ends well for the government. Like, when will they learn their damn lesson? You know, like, hey, hey, uh, Sam, you really got to give us the shield, man. You really, It's like, come on, dude. You know at the end of the day, he going to be with the shield. He going to come out on top. And whatever you guys did is just going to look like some fucked up shit. How many times do you have to get your ass kicked until you just stay down? Yeah, seriously, just just let him, you know, if Captain America said this is the guy, this is the motherfucking guy. For my Thor, the Dark World Award, I'm going with the American banking industry. <laughs> <laughs> a 
that's such a good answer. Oh my god, that's such a good answer. We are the Occupy Wall Street of geek podcasts. You know, it's funny because I actually have them wrote down. The flag bearers seem to have like an Occupy Wall Street esque vibe. The flag smashers. (laughs) It's just such a dumb name. We might as well call them something else. You know, (laughs) bear. The flag bearers, which is kind of the opposite of flag smashing, I would say. Um. Yeah, oh, so you don't really like smash bane. a flag. You like kind of cut sort a flag of, down. Sort of uh, like Bane vibes to them. Yeah, definitely. I, I could see that for sure. All right, the Jarvis Award for the best performance by anyone except the lead actor. Allow me to introduce myself. I am Jarvis, a virtual artificial intelligence, and I'm here to assist you with a variety of tasks as best I can. Going with our man Don Cheeto comes in for an excellent pep talk, totally lives up to the exclusive he dropped on our podcast. You're the man, Don Cheeto. Love it. I'm gonna I'm just gonna stick with yours. Do you think that that's it for our boy? Yeah, I think that's probably it. I would I would very much be happy to be wrong, but I think that might be it. Okay. All right, the Tony Stark Exposition Award or AKA the Star-Lord Who Award for shit that we need explained to us. Hey, you know what? There's another name you might know me by. Star-Lord. Who? Star-Lord, man. Legendary outlaw. Uh, I think Falcon and the Winter Soldier is raising a truly fascinating point. And this goes back to the thing that you disagreed about. How do the Avengers exist as everyday regular people who need to pay their bills? I think it's interesting. And I think it's interesting because it raises questions. Do their sacrifices for the greater good require or deserve compensation? How do we reward our heroes? And it is the responsibility of the Avengers to continually screw up their own lives for the sake of strangers. I think them existing outside of the superhero ecosystem as regular people is important for us to see because it shows us the weight and cost of what they do and their sacrifice. And I think it also upholds their heroism and their bravery because we see like, man, there are serious ramifications for this guy and his family. So. I like it. I want I want that explored more. Uh, for me, it's why can't the government get Bucky set up with a arm that's not a weapon of war? That's a great, great fucking question. Like if great guys, question. Like if you guys are so worried about it, the metal arm that's still currently attached to him would be a good place to start. We and are I, living in an amazing age of prosthetic technology. This man does not need a vibranium cannon on his shoulder. Yeah, I mean, especially when in every Marvel movie, we've seen like, wow, their technology is far advanced than, uh, you know, modern days. Yeah, so. Like Killiam in Iron Man 3 basically fixes his entire like scoliosis. You get, you're telling me this guy can't hook him up with like a solid arm? Oh, I like that little tease there. <laughs> there you go. Do you, I mean, do you want to tell the people? You want to yeah, watch? sure, why not? Next week, we're going to talk to Guy Pierce for Woo! a nice chat, I hope. 20 minutes, 30 minutes, we're going to be hopefully asking about his new film, The Seventh Day. We're going to obviously try and squeeze in something about Iron Man 3, Prometheus, LA Confidential, Memento, of course, which I can't wait to ask him how it feels that he's no longer the star of Christopher Nolan's most confusing movie. I'll be interested to see what he says of that. And I'm, I'm excited <laughs> for the listeners to uh, to get that one. <laughs> yeah, so we'll put out a tweet at some point this weekend for questions that y'all might have. <laughs> Uh, the Time Stone That Real Quick Award, aka Rewind That Real Quick. The aerial action sequence. It was awesome. It was like a modernized, excuse me, it was like a modernized update of the desert fighter jet battles in Independence Day. Just really fun and impressive. Yeah, same man. All right, put this in Odin's Vault Award, aka put that in the museum. I would say, again, action that flows from the characters and serves as an extension of the themes and messages of your project and not just, you know, Random punching for punching's sake. And I think this episode does it. Keep that coming. I'm going with the idea of like heroes struggling to figure out their place in this world. That is sort of the entire pathos of like what DC is trying to do, right? Like Superman and Batman, sort of these characters who are never going to fit in society. The MCU has never really had that problem. Tony Stark is beloved. Black Panther is a king. While it's a well-worn superhero idea, it hasn't really been explored in the MCU that perhaps these guys, there is no room for them in this world. So that idea really intrigues me. All right, the cast- Especially now, right? Like, like, do you think the MCU world now, post-Thanos is gearing up for the next battle or trying to like put that stage behind them? 
I mean, I think they're hoping that there's not a next battle, but we know because the plot demands it of the MCU, there's going to be. It's going to be like a Galactus yeah. or a Mephisto or like Doom. Well, I, don't I know. guess Someone my point is, do you think heroes are more public, publicly accepted than they were during the Civil War times? Like, do you think people now appreciate the fact that they unsnapped yeah, I mean, yeah. Bucky was pardoned, and he shouldn't be. Like, him and Wanda both get off scot-free because they did one good thing, and they, you know, they they should be facing consequences, and neither of them are. Okay, I like so, that. So, yeah, That's I do. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Cap lifts the hammer award for the best hero moment. I'm going with the therapist, genuinely trying to help Bucky, who again is a mass murderer. I understand the Winter Soldier and Bucky aren't the same people. It doesn't matter, man. He's a mass murderer. So I, I think it's really cool that she's trying to help someone who, for a lot of people, isn't deserving a redemption or a second chance. And I think in general in pop culture, therapy scenes have definitely become a shortcut to like externalizing your internalized mo monologue. But I also think it's cool and it helps promote mental health. And she's clearly cares about her job. So good scene. Way to go. For my cap lifts the hammer, even though you sort of just dunked on them, I'm dunked on him. I'm going on Torres, just going balls to the wall up to that giant bad guy who just yoked that cop and being like, freeze, buddy. Like, <laughs> dumb or not, that was heroic. Oh no, yeah. Listen, I'm not knocking the hustle. I'm just saying, you know, go about it in a better way. But like Torres is tougher than me. I'm going the opposite direction. Right. What is the worst thing you could say about this episode, Eric? Nothing. I don't know. I wouldn't say that there was anything bad that I could say. Maybe that it was, you know, sort of uh, formulaic Marvel at simultaneously their best and their worst, you know, depending on how you feel about like Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 and shit and like Iron Man 3, you know, uh, where it just sort of feels like they are copying and pasting. But no, I'd say overall solid start. I'm sure it will only get stronger from here. Yeah, it's hard for me to criticize this episode because I, I really liked it. But zooming out, I think if you loved the deliberate weirdness and mystery of WandaVision, then you need, may need to readjust your expectations or kind of remodulate uh, what you what you hope for because clearly Falcon and Winter Soldier is far more straightforward. That doesn't mean it's less than, it just means it's different. All right, yeah, and as weeks go, as weeks go on, I'm sure the depth of our conversation will increase. Yeah, for sure. I mean, listen, as long as they keep bringing the, the goods from a character standpoint, I'm going to be thrilled. Right. All right, e, what's the nicest thing you can say about this episode? That it's like, the that it, that it is a return to something that we've lacked for, like, yes, WandaVision was MCU, but it wasn't like traditional MCU fare. Having this sort of, you know, just could sort of turn off my, my brain and enjoy this. And that set piece at the start was better than the WandaVision finale. Yeah. Set pieces by a, a billion miles. So just to be getting back into the thick of the, the scope of the MCU, because WandaVision was a very granular, micro-focused show. This is more of you've got government agencies involved and they're going to be going from country to country. And so, and, you know, as we saw, there's going to be set pieces set in the sky, all that stuff. It's great to be back. Totally. Uh, so I would say for me, it's in one episode, it completely reorients my feelings about two side characters that I never had much interest in. You know, it's tackling weighty subjects like race and societal context and PTSD, and it's entertaining as hell. So I was into it. Uh, I don't have any st cool stuff that I think needs mentioning or Twitter questions, do you? Uh, no, just that about John Walker in the comics. He's a character also U.S. agent. I'm curious to see like if his if what they call him is going to be a plot point and it's tweaked over the course of time or they've just completely changed the comic book nature of him and now he's just like being propped up as the new cat. And I'm hoping that he has somewhat of a, a substantial role because he's played by Wyatt Russell, who's an actor I really like. Oh, and that last scene where they sort of zoom in on him and he's got that smug grin on, he looks so much like his dad there. It was crazy. He's got a very punchable face in that moment too. Nothing against either of the Russell bros because they're, they're awesome people. 
Right. But like, I think he's meant to have a punchable face. Yeah, I think that's the whole point, right? Exactly. Yeah, that smug son of a bitch. All right, well then, that's that's pretty much it, Eric. I think we've covered every nook and cranny of the pilot. I'm so excited to just run back our WandaVision platform. You know, every week we're hitting Falcon and Winter Soldier with all the details. But now I'm extra excited to hop into our interview with Bob Odenkirk. Again, star of Nobody drops this Friday. Really fun action flick, and he had some cool things to say about his career. Uh, now, Bob, right off the bat, most important question I'll ask you of this whole interview. If I only have one afternoon in Naperville, Illinois, do I hit the Sentinel Beach or do I do the River Walk? What do you what are you suggesting here? Well, it has to be summer, but uh, to do Centennial Beach, you can do River Walk any time of year. Uh, you must go to Centennial Beach. That's number one. OK, done. Now, the man himself has said it. I got it in the books. Um, so when they're, you were they're right next to each other, also Brandon, so you can easily uh, do. So it's going to be a packed afternoon. I'm going to have a great yeah. time in Naperville, yeah. Illinois. I love it. And then you uh, want to go to Dairy Queen, and I wish you could go to uh, the old Cock Robin ice cream shop because that was a great old local ice cream shop, but it's gone. I'm sorry. That's unfortunate. I will. I will finally stand there and think of the memory that you have, though. How does that sound? Cool. <laughs> All right. So when you were hopping around from, you know, College of DuPage, Marquette University, then Southern Illinois, and you were hosting the midnight to 4 a.m. primetime special radio show on WIDB, did you ever think that one day you'd be leading your own action movie? <laughs> Brandon, three years ago, I wasn't sure I was going to be a lead in my own action movie. <laughs> Even when I was training, I thought it was ludicrous. Uh, you know how hard it is to get a movie made. I do indeed. Uh, it is very, very hard. And years and years go into it, and most of them fall apart for one reason or another. So uh, listen, I actually thought I'd get laughed at when I proposed it. I really did. And I was surprised when my manager, Mark Provisero, who was the first person I called to say, you know, my brother-in-law sent me a screen grab of a Better Call Saul ad in southern China. I know it plays in Italy and Russia. They know me there as this earnest, striving character. What do you think, if I was willing to train, do you think I could do an action genre picture? And Mark said, I think you're onto something. And I was very surprised. I, told, I asked my wife, she's also my manager, they're, they're business partners. And she uh, didn't laugh, but she did scowl. She does not love action movies, so it took a long time to win her over. I think maybe only in the last week is she starting to think it was a good idea. <laughs> now that it's on the precipice of actually hitting theaters. <laughs> yeah. All right, true. well, to build off that, you're obviously someone who's been successfully working in the industry since the late 1980s, yet it feels like your on-screen career has kind of blown up over the last decade to a new level. And again, yeah. leading your own action movie. So is it strange at all to receive this level of acclaim and success at this deep stage of your career? Uh, it is. It is. Um, I try not to think about it too much. <laughs> but I do think, Brandon, that um, I'm very lucky that, it, that this attention and appreciation that I've been gifted with the last few years by the audiences and critics is um, I'm very lucky to have gotten it, but and, and even more lucky to have gotten it later in life because you just can sense well, how hard it is for probably a younger person to manage that, um, the way it um, makes you feel. Um, it's very nice to get attention and have people interested in what you've done. It's really nice, and uh, and yet it, you have to keep it in uh, perspective. And it's easier to do if you're older and you've been through it. And of course, I've seen a lot of my friends uh, from when I was young get very famous and do big things. And so I have a fair amount of perspective on it from that. Now, nobody is distributed by Universal. John Wick is distributed by Lionsgate. As we've seen with Marvel and Sony, rival studios can work together. Would you ever like to see a crossover between these two characters, given some of the similarities, though they are clearly very different movies with different things on their mind? 
I agree with you on everything you just said. There, there are similarities. There's similarities in tone. There's similarities in the, in the way the world blows up into a mythic realm. That's uh, Derek Kolstad, the writer, yeah. same writer, and that's why. Uh, and yet there are differences. I mean, uh, my character, the first thing he does in a fight is he hits his head on a piece of the bus, you know, and I don't think John Wick would ever hit his head on anything uh, unless he intended to. Um, I would love to do anything with Keanu because he's a very nice guy and he trains and works hard and earnestly to do his part. I mean, he takes his job seriously and, uh, and he's a nice guy. I've gotten to meet him just to say hello and chat a, a little bit because uh, worked at the same gym that he preps all the John Wicks at. Nice little intersection right there. Just two leading men, you know, getting buff for their action movies. No big deal. Well, now, now hold on. I, I take great exception to the buffness. You know, <laughs> you're, you're looking I, good I, in, I, in this movie. Well, thank you, Brandon. But I think I still have a dad bod, right? I, I would say you're, you're looking svelte and you look like you can kill all these people that you go on and kill. I'm in the best shape of my life, but I'm not beefy. You know, I don't have like big muscles. I didn't do... Uh, you know, the Kumail transformation. Right. Uh, because I needed to still be a dad. I needed to look like a, a person you could go, maybe he's a little better shaped than me, but I could, do, <laughs> I could do that if I put three weeks into it. Well, I think you nailed the middle ground then between, you know, dangerous assassin and like still a suburban dad. So well done. Yeah. Uh, so characters are built on relatability, but as your career continues to level up and take off in all these amazing, amazing directions and audiences begin to know you by name even more so than they did, does it ever get more difficult to pull off that relatability? Um, I don't know. Have you seen uh, the movie uh, The Father? I have, yes. Like who could be more famous than Anthony Hopkins and how great and relatable and real does that feel? I mean, it's just amazing. I think, you know, I'm obviously name checking one of the great actors of our era, but I think it can be done, you know, and I, and I also think I'm, you know, um, you know, I'm not selling you my looks. I'm not selling you my, any kind of uh, perfect anything, <laughs> and and so as a result, even even in this in the course of this, you know whether it's Better Call Saul or uh, the Post was a movie that I did that played everywhere that people liked or nobody. I I play real guys, and I just don't think I'm I don't have the face for being uh, a uh, Superman, <laughs> I'm always gonna be a real and regular guy. Well, I do appreciate that you name-checked Anthony Hopkins because it does kind of segue nicely into my next question to switch gears. Uh, he once called Brian Cranston's turn as Walter White the greatest acting performance he's ever seen. I was wondering if you maybe have a specific memory of working with him or just working on Breaking Bad where you realized for the first time you're a part of an iconic contribution to television. Well, you know, when I joined Breaking Bad, it was the end of the second season, and it was not a successful show yet. I mean, it was almost canceled after that season yeah. and the first season. Um, I, I definitely have to point to the uh, San Diego Comic-Con uh, on the premiere right before the final season premiered. Uh, obviously, the snowball effect of Netflix streaming, uh, which began around year three on Breaking Bad and year four and year five. And then, you know, you definitely knew we were a big show that was growing, but that comic, that Comic-Con experience was like uh, Beatles-esque. As mean, it should be. It was uh, insane. And uh, I went out with Aaron Paul and we, you know, there's all kinds of parties that happen and, in the town uh, every night of Comic-Con. And we were just moving from one party to the next. And as you're walking through the streets, people are yelling, people are running over to you. You kind of have to move fast. It was, it was a thrilling, exciting thing that made me go, holy shit, we, <laughs> we made something that um, 
worked, impacted. And now you followed that up with Better Call Saul, which obviously is having a similar impact. Uh, now, I know you can't get into spoilers, and I don't want to hear them because I'm a massive fan, but I am curious how this final season of Better Call Saul left you feeling after you read it, and maybe what you hope fans take, a, take away from it when it's all said and done. Well, Brandon, we've just started shooting season six. I've read uh, four episodes now, and uh, let me just say the shit hits the fan. Uh, and it, it really makes me happy. It's going to make you happy, and I think it's going to actually attract a lot of people to the show because... Our show has been a slow burn, right? And uh, and I think maybe a little slow for some people. But when they find out that it actually explodes, and uh, and keeps exploding, at the end they're gonna they're gonna join us. I think. I don't know how it could explode more than the the Laszlo oh. Nacho compound scene, but I'm excited to find out. Yeah, it goes. It goes. It's amazing. Now, I love to hear that. Now, in addition to being a writer, actor, and director, you're also a producer, like you are here on Nobody, as an actor slash producer at the same time. Does that ever affect the mental math in your head when you're trying trying to balance entertainment and successful commerce? Huh. I'm hitting you, you with those thinker, Bob. I mean, you're always trying for a sweet spot, right, where you're kind of making something that you love, that you you know you're making with all your heart and um skill but that you obviously we always want audiences to like our stuff as many people as possible um i i think i've found that spot i think i know where to live in that and it's going to mean that i don't always deliver on um a crowd pleaser I, i think nobody could be a crowd pleaser but uh I, I think if I do continue going down the road, I've gone down my whole career, you know, some things are bigger than others. Some things really work and you can't chase that audience too much because right. you'll, you'll lose. And uh, it's better to just, you know, with Mr. Show, David Cross and I were really making a show for ourselves and that was great. And it drew people like us to it. I think then you move into other things and you maybe try to please more people, but you always have to be, there's an old rule in improv, play to the top of your intelligence, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't sort of agree with that. I, I think the rule with acting and improv invention should be play to the top of your dignity, which is to say <clears throat> all characters consider themselves to be good people and dignified. They can be dumb as hell though. (laughs) Um, But when it comes to creating stuff, that's where you wanna try to play to the top of your intelligence as best you can. I like that answer. I think that's a good approach. Uh, Now, nobody is gonna change up the equation, I think, because I agree with you, it can be a crowd pleaser for sure. But what is the line drunken fans shout at you most frequently? Well, they usually shout Saul, not even Saul. Um, Better call Saul. Uh, Is that the the number one? That's it. They just yell. (laughs) But can you ever tell when someone's coming up to you like, oh, this guy's a Mr. Show fan or this guy's a Better Call Saul fan? Can you just tell when that look of recognition crosses their face? I'm pretty good at it. I've gotten less good at it because this this audience has, you know, all these projects are more viewable by more people. Right. You know, Mr. Show was such a tight cult group that I could be in a grocery store or somewhere and I could go, that person knows Mr. Show and that person. And I'd be right. Like you just could tell from their tattoos, which often right. said Mr. Show on them. Um, but uh now it's harder to tell, but you know what's weird, man? What? Fans of How I Met Your Mother, who've never seen anything else, it seems, who go like, you're that guy, and I go Breaking Bad, and they go, no. Uh, Arthur I Hobbs. Go, I go Mr. Show, and they go, no, uh, How I Met Your Mother. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Uh, probably one or two a year, and they know How I Met Your Mother, I, I was only in six episodes for only a few minutes. Not a big role at all. 
And they just know and love that show so intensely as, as much as most people, you know, off, a lot of people feel about Breaking Bad and things like that. Well, you made a small role memorable. I loved it. I'm a big Howard. Met your mother fan. Really enjoyed Nobody. Thank you so much for your time, Bob. Appreciate it. And good luck with the thousand other versions of me you got up. All right, Brandon. Thanks for your fun questions. It was all good. Thanks, man. Appreciate that. Have a good one. And then big thanks to Bob Odenkirk for coming on the show. And if you want a little bit more, go to Observer.com for the rest of that interview. All right, that's it. We'll talk to you all next week. We've got uh, Falcon and Winter Soldier episode two. Does Godzilla vs. Kong drop next week? March 31st. Okay, good. That's not next week then. Okay, thank God. Uh, And then, yeah, as we we just teased, we're going to be talking to the great guy Pierce. So that's dope. And we will talk to you all Friday, I suppose. I I don't know. This has been the longest week of my entire (laughs) life. In the meantime, follow at PostgredPod on Twitter. Please leave us a five-star review on Apple if you like us. If you don't, just, you know, keep that shit to yourself. Go. <laughs> All right, y'all. Peace. I'm going to make him an offer, guys. My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. <laughs>